biblical worldview. And more than that, we've lost sight of the one who created us. And so the hope is over the course of the next couple months here as we make our way through the first three chapters of Genesis, we would be reminded of the God that we worship, and we'd be also reminded of the way in which he views the world. So that said, Genesis 1 is where we are this morning. Let me pray, and we'll get to it here. Uh, Father, yeah, I confess that this is a passage that obviously has had much debate over the years, and so I come with a bit of trepidation this morning, and I just ask that you would be gracious to me. Would you just help me to preach your word faithfully? Lord, I pray that you would help us who are here this morning to hear your word with humility and to hear your word rightly. Oh God, I pray that you would cut through all of the noise surrounding Genesis 1 and that you would help us to see the main point, that you would help us to be reminded of who you are and that we would leave here this morning worshiping you. So God, in this moment, I pray that you would just be gracious and help us. Or the fact is, we know that we are prone to distraction. We are prone to interpreting the Bible in the way we want to see it. But our goal this morning is just to be faithful to what your text says. So please help me to that endeavor, or help me in that endeavor, and help us to have ears to hear this morning. In Christ's name we pray all this. Amen. Well, it's impossible to know exactly how many copies of the Bible have been printed over the years, but in 2021, the British and Foreign Bible Society estimated that 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 number is probably somewhere between 5 and 7 billion copies. Needless to say, then, the Bible is unique in its widespread distribution and production. No other book is like it in terms of sheer numbers produced. In fact, the Guinness Book of World Records officially recognizes the Bible as the best-selling book of all time. But while the Bible may be the best-selling book of all time, I think it's also fair to say that it's probably the most studied, analyzed, and critiqued book of all time, whether it be from believers or skeptics alike. As a book that claims to be the Word of God, the Bible tends to draw a lot of attention in terms of assessment and evaluation. But as much as the Bible as a whole garners this type of analysis and appraisal, if I had to guess, I would predict that no passage in Scripture has generated as much debate and as much attention over the years as the one we are about to study this morning. Now, I could be wrong about that, and there's no way to prove that the creation account in Genesis 1 is the most analyzed and debated passage in all of Scripture. But given the extensive cultural debate that exists in our culture surrounding the origins of the universe, and given the extensive debate that exists even within the church regarding the interpretation of this account, I don't think I'm stepping too far out into left field and suggesting this might be the most debated and analyzed passage in all of Scripture. At the very least, it's one of the most debated passages in all Scripture. And it's certainly one that, because of the debate, has captured my attention over the years, and I suspect yours as well. That said, the great challenge this morning is that we could get so caught up in the debate regarding this passage, questions like, how old is the earth? Did creation really unfold this way? Did God create in six days? How does Genesis 1 line up with modern scientific discovery? We could get so caught up in those types of questions that we could end up missing the main point of the passage. And the main point of the passage has almost nothing to do with those questions. Rather, the main point of the passage is that God is the powerful creator who spoke all things into existence by the power of his word and what he created was good. I think that's the main point of the passage. And the danger is we could lose sight of that because of all the debate and questions surrounding the passage. As we said last week, the book of of Genesis is far more concerned with God the creator than with the timing and details of creation. And so if we leave here today thinking more about the theories of Genesis 1 than the creator of Genesis 1, we have missed the mark. But, having said that, I think some of the debate surrounding Genesis 1 is significant enough that we at least need to address it. 
We can't pretend as if we don't hear it. And therein lies the challenge for us this morning. We don't want to ignore the cultural and theological conversation that's taking place because it is significant regarding the creation account in Genesis 1. But on the other hand, we don't want it to distract us from the big picture. And so there's a bit of a tightrope to walk this morning. And so my goal is simply this. I want us to have the space to address some of the debate that surrounds Genesis 1. But I do not want to lose sight of the main point of the passage. And so my end prayer is this, that we would leave here this morning not being more skilled in handing Genesis 1 creation debate, but rather that we would leave here more in love with our Creator. That's my prayer. I'm definitely going to need the help of the Spirit to do that. That said, let's turn our attention to Genesis 1. Let's get to it. Genesis 1, if you want to stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, I think that's a good idea as it reminds us that the Word of God is indeed the Word of God. So Genesis 1, verses 1 to 25 is where we are this morning. A bit of a lengthy section, like one that's worth addressing in one spell here. Genesis 1, starting in verse 1, the Word of God says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the water from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which there is seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there's evening and there's morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Maybe see it. It's the word of God. All right, so as I alluded to here just a minute ago, one of my goals this morning is to keep us on track and make sure we don't lose sight of the main point. And again, that main point is that God is the powerful creator who spoke all things into existence by the power of his word, and what he created was good. And because I don't want to lose sight of that main point, there's part of me this morning that just wants to ignore the debate and noise surrounding Genesis 1. In fact, there's a lot of me that wants to avoid that debate. And some of my friends, when they've preached through this text, they've done just that. In order to not be distracted, they've decided, I'm just not going to address all the debate that surrounds how many days, how old is earth, those types of things. 
And I understand why that's a temptation, because the fact of the matter is those things can distract from the big picture. But having said that, I recognize that sometimes secondary issues are so glaring that they need to be addressed in order to allow us to focus on the main thing. To give an analogy, let's say on my wedding day, Tanya comes down the aisle to me. And when she gets down the aisle, I have a bloody nose and a black eye and a swollen lip and cuts all over my face. And of course, in that moment, she would ask, what happened to you? Now, I could tell her, babe, it's our wedding day. And the most important thing that's happening right now is we're getting married. So let's not lose sight of the big picture. Let's focus on the main thing. But listen, while that would be a truthful way of approaching the issue, after all, getting married is more important than the wounds on my face. The fact of the matter is that my bloody face is going to be a huge distraction. So I might as well briefly tell her what happened. I got attacked by a bear in the parking lot, whatever happened, so that we can then focus on the most important thing, which is getting married. In that analogy, not addressing the secondary issue, the bloody face, would prohibit us from focusing on the main issue, the wedding. In the same way, we could simply focus on the big picture of Genesis 1 and ignore the controversy and questions surrounding the creation account. But it's probably worth addressing the bloody face so that, we get then so that we can then focus on the more important thing. So let's briefly, or somewhat briefly, I'm going to give myself that out here, somewhat briefly, touch on the questions and controversies surrounding Genesis 1 so that we can set those questions aside and then focus on the big picture. Now obviously the controversies surrounding this passage are related to the timing and details of creation. Did God really create in six days? Exactly how old is the earth? And how does the count in Genesis 1 line up with modern scientific discovery? Now to be clear, I'm not going to attempt to answer those questions exhaustively this morning. First of all, that would be impossible, and that's why there's a huge debate, right? Because no one has been, been able to exhaustively answer those questions. Second of all, to even attempt to do so would take forever. There have literally been whole books written on each of the questions I just asked. On top of that, there are people who have studied Genesis 1 and the creation story far more extensively than me. So I wouldn't even be the right guide to attempt to answer those questions exhaustively. But what I think I can do this morning is introduce some basic principles and ideas regarding the timing and details of creation that hopefully will be helpful. And perhaps the best way to do that is to take a step back and ask a broader question. And the broader question is this, what is the relationship between science and the Bible? Namely, when there's an apparent contradiction between what the Bible teaches and what science teaches, what do we do? Well, first of all, I think we need to emphasize something here. All apparent contradictions between science and the Bible are just that. They are apparent contradictions. Now, to explain what I mean by that, I think it's helpful to think about both the doctrine of Scripture and the way we should approach science. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is God's Word. As such, it is inerrant and infallible. By that I mean it is without error and is trustworthy in everything it says. I can open to any, any page in the Bible, literally any page, I can put my hand on it and I can say, that's true. Without exception, because the Bible is the Word of God. Science, on the other hand, is fallible. You have to admit that. Many things we once thought to be true scientifically have since been proven false. For example, many of the things that we use for medicine just 100 years ago, let alone 200 or 1,000 years ago, we would look back now and say, what were they thinking? Why would they put that in the body? So the Word of God is infallible, science is not. Having said that, though, we need to acknowledge that true scientific facts 
True scientific facts in the Bible will never be at odds. Because science is actually based on the idea that the universe has order, and that order comes from God. In fact, I think you could make the argument, I would, that science is actually impossible apart from a theistic worldview. Only because God created the universe can we study the universe and make observations about how things work. Rightly understood, as some have pointed out, science then is an endeavor to understand the world as God has created it. What that means practically then is this. In the end, when we get to glory and all of the facts are correctly understood about science and correctly understood about the Bible, there will be no discrepancy. Which is why I said at the beginning, apparent contradictions between Bible and the science are just that. They are apparent. That still leaves us with a question, though, doesn't it? What do we do when now, on this side of glory, it still seems like science and the Bible contradict one another? It's probably helpful to take Genesis 1 as an example, because that's maybe the most obvious example in Scripture, and it's also the passage that we're looking at today. Many modern scientists would argue that the earth is about 4.5 billion years old, and the universe itself is 14 billion years old, and that the world as we know it came about through processes that took millions and millions of years. On the other end of the spectrum, most Christians throughout the years have argued, based upon what we read here in Genesis 1, the creation took place in six literal days, and the earth is probably six to 10,000 years old. So my question for us this morning is, what do we do with that contradiction? Now, to begin answering that question, I think we need to understand a really important Christian principle. And that principle is related to the doctrine of Scripture. As Christians, we believe the Bible is God's Word. Let me say that again. And thus, whenever there's conflict between the Word of God and modern teaching, whether that teaching be scientific or moralistic or philosophical, we always, and without exception, side with Scripture. Always. Modern teaching Again, whether it be scientific or moralistic or philosophical, is fallible. The Word of God is not. So when conflicts seem to rise between modern science and the Bible, or modern morality in the Bible, or modern philosophy in the Bible, we always land on the side of the Bible. Having said that, though, we need to acknowledge that sometimes, sometimes it's challenging to interpret the Bible correctly. Now, there are many passages in the Bible that are really straightforward. It's not hard to figure out what the Bible is saying. In those cases, we just need to believe it and do what it says. But there are some passages that are more complicated and some passages that require more work to properly interpret and some passages that quite honestly just require humility. And so what that means practically is this. When science and the Bible conflict, I think there are two questions we need to ask. One question is, are our scientific facts, and I'll put that in quotes, are they actually true? Again, throughout history, many scientific facts have subsequently been proven false and in some cases absurdly so. So we need to be willing to ask the question, how confident are we in a scientific theory? But there's also a second question we need to ask when it comes to the idea of science and the Bible contradicting. And that second question is, are we interpreting the Bible correctly? To give you an example, in the 1600s, when the Italian astronomer Galileo taught that the earth was not the center of the universe, but rather the earth and the other planets revolved around the sun, he was widely criticized in the church and eventually his writings were condemned by the church. And the reason they were condemned is because many people at the time thought that the Bible taught the sun revolved around the earth. They based that thinking on passages like Ecclesiastes 1.5, which speaks of the sun rising and the sun going down. But the problem with interpreting Ecclesiastes 1.5 in that way, to mean that the sun is revolving around the earth, <clears throat> excuse me, is that's not what Ecclesiastes 1.5 is saying at all. 
Rather, the author of Ecclesiastes is simply describing the rising and setting of the sun from the human perspective. Even today, we still speak in the same way. Even though we know the earth revolves around the sun, we still talk about the sun setting and rising because from our perspective, that's what it looks like. So in the case of Galileo and the sun being the center of the universe, when science and the Bible seemed to be in conflict, the problem wasn't that that Galileo was wrong in his scientific facts. The problem was that many in the church were interpreting the scriptures wrongly. So when we have an apparent contradiction between science and the Bible, it's worth asking, are our scientific facts correct? But it's also worth asking, are we reading the Bible correctly? Which brings me back to Genesis 1. When it comes to this apparent contradiction between those who theorize that the earth is young, 6 to 10,000 years old, and those who theorize that the earth is old, 4.5 billion years, we should ask both of those questions. There are legitimate questions we need to be asked about scientific facts. For example, are our dating techniques correct? Are they accurate and trustworthy? Those are the types of questions we should ask. But we also need to be willing to ask this question. Are we interpreting the Bible correctly? And that is my primary concern this morning. There are other people far more equipped and far more trained to be able to handle scientific questions. But as a preacher of God's word, my primary task today is the same as it is every Sunday. And that task is simply to answer this question. What does this text actually teach? Now, before we start diving into Genesis 1, what I think it actually teaches, we have to be honest here. Even amongst those who hold that the Bible is the word of God, and that it is inerrant and infallible, and that it trumps anything that modern teaching would say, there are still a wide variety of different ways to interpret this passage. In fact, in his small booklet on different Christian interpretations of Genesis 1, notice Christian interpretations. In other words, people are trying to be faithful to the Bible. Theologian Vern Poitras lists 10 different Christian approaches to this text. 10. Some of those approaches argue that Genesis 1 teaches a young earth, Others leave open the door that Genesis 1 is teaching an old earth. Now, I'm not going to go through all 10, but I will mention some of the most prominent ones here. Most notable among those approaches are, first, the calendar day approach, which argues that Genesis 1 is arguing for a literal 24-hour day. There's the day-age approach, which would suggest that each day represents a long period of time. There's the analogical days approach, which contends that the days in Genesis 1 are being used as an analogy help us understand God's work. There's the literary framework approach, which suggests the days are merely being used as a literary device to help structure the content. There's the gap theory, which would suggest that there is a large gap of time between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Now, the first of those approaches, the calendar approach or the 24-hour day approach, would necessitate a young earth, while the other four would leave open the possibility of an older earth. Now, here's the thing, and I think it's important that you hear me say this. All of those approaches, at least if I rightly understand them, would argue that God is the creator and that the Bible is the word of God. And thus, they're all trying to take seriously what the text says. And listen, all of them have strengths and weaknesses, which is something that people in the debate around creation are often unwilling to admit about their own theories. Each of them have strengths and weaknesses. And for my part, I'll say this. I think it's possible with a huge caveat that I'll come back to in a second to hold to any of those five theories I just mentioned and still be a Christian who's trying to be faithful to the text. That said, I'm just going to go ahead and put my cards on the table here. I think it's my job to try to teach what I think it says. I do hold to the young earth view. And the 24-hour day theory mean that each of the six days represents a literal day. And I hold to that view for a few key reasons. 
One, while it's true that the Hebrew word yom, which is translated day, you'll see the word day throughout Genesis 1 here. While it's true, that can refer to a general period of time, or it can be used as an idiom. And in fact, in Scripture, it sometimes does both. The word normally, however, means a 24-hour period. And in the context of Genesis 1, that would seem to be the way it's being used here. In particular, the repeated use of the phrase, there was, me, there was morning and there was evening, the first day. There was morning and there was evening, the second day. There was morning and there was evening, the third day. That seems to be describing a normal 24-hour day. Furthermore, in the days of creation are referred to again in Exodus 20, in the context of the Ten Commandments. The teaching in Exodus 20 seems to be referring specifically again to this idea of 24-hour days. Now, to be fair, even in the context of Genesis 1 itself, there are some pretty serious challenges for the person who holds to a young earth view in the literal six days. But I think it's the view that makes the most sense of the text. That said, I think the other views that I mentioned are trying to be faithful to the text, and thus I think as Christians there's room to disagree provided that, and here comes my caveat, provided that we hold to two key facts about the creation story. One, God is the creator. Two, there really was an historic Adam and Eve created by God. And that's where the theory of evolution starts to become extraordinarily problematic. As Christians, we may disagree on the age of the earth, but we must agree that God is creator, and we must agree that Adam and Eve were real people. If we abandon those two tent poles, I would argue the tent will collapse. If God is not creator, then the rest of the Bible makes very little sense. And why would we owe him anything? If there was no Adam and Eve, if they were not real people created by God himself, then the argument in Romans 5 that Jesus is the second Adam starts to lose its weight. So to the extent that evolutionary theory calls into question God as creator, or Adam and Eve as historic figures, which it does, we must denounce evolutionary theory for what it really is, an attempt to undermine the authority of God and the authority of the scriptures. Now listen, I'm not surprised that one of Satan's great tactics is to try to convince us God didn't really create us. The word is a product of random time and chance. That does not surprise me because Satan loves attacking the authority of God and he loves attacking the authority of God's word. So I'm not surprised that we are dealing with the idea of evolutionary theory. Now having said that, let me also add this. I'm personally convinced that the scientific evidence for creation is much stronger than any scientific evidence for evolution. In fact, I don't even think it's close. So hear me when I say this. I'm not suggesting as Christians, we read Genesis 1 and then we just put our fingers in our ears. La, 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 la. We don't care about science. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is the science actually backs up what Scripture teaches. Because again, in the end, there's no real contradiction between true scientific fact and the Bible. And listen, if you're interested in diving more into the weeds, I've already dived into the weeds more than I'm comfortable with this morning. But if you're interested in diving deeper in the weeds, I would be happy to connect you with some resources on this. As Christians, we do not have to run from intellectual arguments. I think sometimes we, we feel that way. Well, we just trust the Bible. We don't need to have intellectual arguments. We don't need to run from them. We don't need to run from them. At the end of the day, there's no actual conflict between true science and the teaching of the Bible. The two perfectly coexist. Now, having said all that, we've spent entirely too much time explaining our bloody face here. And we need to get back to the wedding. We need to get back to the more important issue. Now again, the reason I address these issues is because I think they can distract. And I want you to know what I think Scripture is teaching here. 
But at the end of the day, it's important we do not lose sight of the main point. So again, let me restate that main point. God is the powerful creator who spoke all things into existence by the power of his word. And what he created was good. Now to help you see that main point, I want to draw your attention to several phrases that occurred throughout Genesis 1. One of the striking things about this passage is the amount of times that, refra- that phrases are used over and over and over again. And those phrases, I think, are helped to direct our attention. They're helping us to see what's important. They're helping us to understand the big picture. So three repeated phrases I want you to three- see throughout Genesis 1. The first phrase is, and God said. Seven times in verses 3 through 25, the phrase, and God said, appears. Now, if you expand it to the end of the chapter, ten times that phrase appears. But I want you to see it in the text here. So let's start in verse 3. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the water from the waters. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. So time and time again, you see this phrase, and God said. Now notice, almost every time that phrase appears, it's accompanied by another repeated phrase. And that other repeated phrase is, and it was so. So let's let's go back again, verses 6 and 7. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the water from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Verses 14 and 15, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. When God speaks, things happen. He says it, and then it does it. Even on the two occasions where the phrase, and God said, is not immediately followed by it was so, it's clear in those instances also that God's word immediately accomplishes exactly what he said. And in that, we have a powerful picture of a God who creates with a word. It's the ultimate portrait of power and strength. Anyone who's been a parent for any amount of time knows that our words are not as powerful as we would like them to be. We tell our kids to do this or to do that, and they forget or they ignore it or they challenge it. But God, on the other hand, when he speaks, things come into existence. Furthermore, our efforts to accomplish things on this earth come at the cost of great time and effort. To give you an example, when we first adopted our daughter, we knew that Karis' hair would be a challenge for us because her hair obviously is not like our hair. And so Tanya had to watch a ton of videos to try to figure out the best way to take care of Karis' hair in a way that would look good and yet still be healthy. It's been a long process and not an easy one, but over the years, Tanya's gotten pretty good to the point that she often gets compliments from strangers, even those who would know they're talking about saying, this looks good. 
But here's the thing. Even though Tanya is still really good at it, it takes work. Some of Karis' hairdos take upwards of eight hours to complete. In fact, yesterday I asked if I could share this story, and she goes, well, actually, sometimes it's nine hours. But listen, that's what life is like here on this planet. To accomplish anything of note takes great time and effort. And that's what makes the account in Genesis 1 so staggering, right? God speaks, and then it comes into existence immediately. Sun, there it is. Moon, there it is. Stars, there they are. Can you imagine being so powerful that you speak and galaxies come into existence? I cannot, but that is the God that we worship. So that's one repeated phrase I think is key. And God said, followed by it, and it was so. Repeated phrase number two, according to its kind. Verse 11 is where we see this first. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. Verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. Verse 21, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. Verse 25, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. Now, sometimes we make too much of this phrase, according to its kind, as if God is giving us the first scientific classification. I don't think that's what's happening here. Rather, I think that phrase is simply helping us to understand something. God created with purpose and intentionality and design. In fact, everything in this passage stresses that. God separates the water from, or the sky from the waters. He separates the light from the darkness. He gathers the waters together. He puts the sun and moon in place. He commands the birds and fish to be fruitful and multiply. Everything in this passage is done with purpose. And that phrase, according to kind, indicates that to us. It's obvious from Genesis 1 that God designed the universe with a purpose in mind. He was intentional. So that's the second phrase, according to its kind. The third phrase that's repeated over and over again is the phrase, it was good. Verse 10 is the first place we see this. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And in fact, actually, verse 4 before that, and God saw that the light was good. Skipping ahead now to verse 12. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and each tree is bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 18, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Verse 21, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was Good. Verse 25, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, I love that picture here in Genesis 1. God creates and then he steps back and evaluates and he says, it's good. You can sense his delight. You can sense his satisfaction. You can sense his joy. This is good. It's not often as humans that we can look back on something that we've done or made and think, that's really good. But I will say this, when that happens, it's a pretty amazing feeling. I can't think of a lot of examples in my life where this happened, 
but I can think of maybe one, and it involves the gift I gave. I'm not always the best gift giver. I should preface what I'm about to tell you by saying that. I sometimes give dud gifts. I sometimes don't think things through very well in terms of gift, and sometimes I just forget the date. So I have plenty of gift fails over the years, trust me. But a few years ago on our anniversary, I decided I would try something a little bit different. I thought I would try to write my wife a poem. Now, I should tell you something. I'm not an artistic person. And most of the time when I read poetry, I'm like, I don't get this. What is going on here? But since a third of the Bible is poetry, and I'm a Christian, I thought, you know what? I'm going to give it a try. And a crazy thing happened. As I was writing, the words just started coming out. I don't, I don't think it was me. I really don't. I don't have that gift, but I think it was the Spirit. Nevertheless, when I got done writing, editing, doing all that, I read it and I thought, you know, I think this is pretty good. Now, I didn't know if I was just puffing myself up. I had a history of bad gift giving. Maybe I was just trying to talk myself, and you're doing better. You're doing better. I don't know. But then I gave it to my wife, and when I saw her reaction, I knew, oh, it's good. This is good. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that Edgar Allan Poe Society is reaching out to me since me, like, come be a part of our team. I'm just saying in that context, it accomplished exactly what I wanted. And I can say this, although I've not experienced that feeling many times in my life, most of the things I do, I say, ah, it could be improvement. But that time I thought, this is exactly what I wanted to happen. And I have to say, it was a great feeling. And so I can only imagine when God looks at creation and says, oh, it's good. I can't imagine how delighted and satisfied and joyful he must have felt. And in that third phrase, we have yet another piece of the interpretive puzzle that helps us to understand the main point of this account which again has little to do with the timing and details of creation and everything to do with the creator. To restate that main point, the point of this passage is that God is the powerful creator who spoke all things into existence by the power of his, or by the power of his word and what he created was good. Now having said that, I think that main point should drive us to action. As we say on a regular base, basis here, free money free. The Bible is not just meant to be admired, it's meant to be applied. And so in light of this account, let me just give you a few exhortations in our final minutes here just that you can consider in terms of what we've read here, how we might respond. All right, so exhortation number one, marvel at the creativity and design in our universe. Psalm 19 talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God and the sky above proclaiming his handiwork. So I'm going to ask Cade to throw a slide up on the screen here to demonstrate the handiwork and glory of our great God. Okay, so as I understand it, this picture is a survey of the galactic plane of the Milky Way. The data set that's contained here contains a staggering 3.32 billion celestial objects. Now, obviously, the image is so large, there's so many objects that you can't even tell what's happening. So, Kate, I'm going to ask you to put up the second slide here, which is a blown-up section of a one really small part of that picture. Right? If you wanted to, you could probably sit all day and still not count all the stars just in that picture, right? let alone the vast galactic plane that we showed in the first picture. Now keep in mind, the Milky Way is just one galaxy. It's estimated that there are 100 billion galaxies, at least, although some estimates have put that number as high as 2 trillion. I mean, are you kidding? That is crazy awesome. Now, here's my favorite part when thinking about the Milky Way or just this small blown-up picture in light of the context of Genesis 1. I want you to listen again to verse 16 and the way that the stars are described because this, I think, is awesome. Verse 16, And God made the two great lights, 
the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. Let me pause just for a second here. I think the reason why the sun and moon are not mentioned is because in the ancient world, the sun and moon were often worshipped. And so God doesn't even call them by name because he's just trying to show, yeah, the sun and moon are nothing. They're just something I created for my purposes. All right, so let's go back again, verse 16. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And this is the part I like, and the stars. And the stars. That's just kind of casually mentioned. When I order a pizza, I might throw in the end, oh yeah, throw in some breadsticks too. You kind of get the sense that's what God's doing in Genesis 1. Oh yeah, and the stars too. I mean, are you kidding? The stars, the universe in all of its glory, and he just says, oh yeah, and the stars. Speak them into existence. Billions and billions of galaxies. Our God is incredible. His creation, astounding. I personally do not think there's any way you can look at the universe around us or you can look at our own bodies as an example and think, ah, this is just a product of random time and chance. No, it is evidence of a creator It's evidence of beauty and design, and we should marvel at it. When we step outside, we should stand in awe. So that's one thing. Exhortation number two, we should delight in the goodness of his creation. At least five times in our passage today, God looks at his creation and simply notes, it was good. Now, even after the fall, this is important, Paul affirms in 1 Timothy 4, creation is still good. Now, certainly creation has marred or has been marred by the fall. Romans 8 would say that creation itself is longing to be redeemed, which makes you wonder, what was it like before the fall? But even in its marred state, we can still say creation is good. And in light of that, I think it's okay for us to say this, delighting in his creation is a good thing for us to do. Now, we tend to run to one of two extremes when it comes to enjoying God's creation. One, we tend to make too much of it and thus turn it into an idol. Or two, we tend to make too little of it and thus fail to enjoy the gifts that God has given us. In other words, we struggle with idolatry on the one hand, worshiping creation rather than the creator, or we struggle with asceticism, the idea that we can't enjoy things, the idea that we just have to be disciplined. But I would say both of those are dangerous errors. The gifts of God are intended to be enjoyed, and they are intended to direct our attention to the giver. And so let me encourage you, enjoy his gifts with gratitude and thankfulness, but make sure you enjoy them. When we were in Rochester at the Mayo Clinic, we had a free Sunday afternoon, one of the weekends that we were there. We'd already gone to church in the morning, the clinic was closed for the day, so we had nothing to do. And as it turns out, my favorite pizza place in all the world, Mabes Pizza, Decorah, Iowa, was about an hour and 20 minutes away from Rochester. And so since we had nothing to do, I said, you know what, let's just make the drive. And I have to say, when I got back, I thought we drove two hours and 40 minutes, and it was the best decision I've made in a long time. It was fantastic. And it reminded me of God's goodness. A God who gives pizza like that is a good God. Now, I certainly should not make an idol of that pizza. I should not worship it. I shouldn't even eat it regularly. I would probably die in 10 years. But I also should not feel guilty enjoying it. I shouldn't think, you know, life's hard right now. How can I enjoy this pizza given everything that's going on? No, I should enjoy his creation. So let me encourage you, enjoy God's created world. Eat a good piece of cake. Go on a fun vacation this summer. Take a walk through the woods. Play fetch with your dog. Do whatever you do with cats. I don't know what you do with cats, but do whatever you do with them. (laughs) Actually, can you enjoy cats as part of God's creation? I'm just kidding. Cat lovers, I know. Listen, enjoy your cats. Enjoy your dogs. Enjoy God's creation. And do so knowing it's good. It's good. 
So that's the second exhortation. Delight in the goodness of creation. Exhortation number three, embrace the word of God. Embrace the word of God. In Genesis 1, God speaks and then things come to be. His word brings life. This is a pattern we see throughout scripture. In the book of Ezekiel, it's the word of God that brings life to dry bones. In Psalm 119, the psalmist speaks of God's word bringing life. And in John 1, in John 1, the word of God takes on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And he brings life. And without question, that passage in John 1 is intended to make you think about Genesis 1. In fact, I'm going to have Cade throw John 1 on the screen here, and I'm going to read it. Because I think what you'll notice is there is a lot of language in John 1 that is coming straight from Genesis 1. John 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning, that should sound familiar to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If that passage sounds familiar to you, it should. That's Genesis 1 language. In the beginning, all things made through Him. Light and dark, life, all of that is taken from Genesis, and no question, it is intentional. The powerful Word of God, which brings light and life to darkness in Genesis 1, finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. The question is, will we embrace the Word? Now, if creation itself responded to the Word of God, and it does, even the stars respond to it, how much more should we? To know the power of God's Word and ignore it is a recipe for disaster. To know of the Word, Jesus Christ, and ignore Him is the path to destruction. He laid down his life so that you might have forgiveness of sins. He rose from the dead so that you might have life. So church, let me encourage you this morning. Tremble at his word. Treasure his word. Obey his word. And embrace the person of Jesus Christ who is the word. So listen, I know there's a lot going on in Genesis 1 here. There's a reason it's one of the most talked about and disputed passages in all of the Bible. But in the midst of all this going on, do not lose sight of the big picture. The main point of Genesis 1 is that God is the powerful creator who spoke all things into existence by the power of his word and what he created was good. And because that's true, we should marvel at his creativity and design in the universe. We should delight in the goodness of his creation and we should embrace his word. And specifically, we should embrace the word, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word which has more meaning than maybe we're willing to admit. We thank you that your word is powerful enough to create universes. But we thank you that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the, gather, from the father, full of grace and truth. God, we pray that we would delight in your creation. We pray that we would marvel at your creativity. But we pray mostly that we would embrace your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen.